Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Rob Heaton for New Books and Biblical Studies, where I focus on new and exciting scholarship in New Testament and early Christian studies, which is the orbit of my own PhD. Uh, on this episode, we'll be speaking with Richard Askoff about the publication of his collected essays relating to the breadth of data that we have on Greco-Roman voluntary associations and the, the relevance of that data to the study of early Christ-following groups, such as Paul's uh, church communities. Uh, we'll dive into all that in short order, but but first, let me introduce my guest. Uh, Richard S. Askoff received his PhD in 1997 from the Toronto School of Theology and is a professor at the School of Religion at Queen's University in Kingston, Canada. He has written extensively on the formation of early Christ groups and uh, Greco-Roman religious culture with particular attention to various types of associations. Uh, he has published widely in the field with more than 50 articles or essays and 13 books, some of which include uh, Christ Groups and Associations, Foundational Essays, uh, published uh, just a couple of years ago, or just last year rather, uh, Associations in the Greco-Roman World, a source book which was published with Philip Harland and uh, John Kloppenberg, and is uh, short to receive a new edition, I believe, and uh, Paul's Macedonian Associations with uh, Moore Zipek in uh, 2003, and I think that has also recently had a, a new edition. Uh, he's been recognized for his innovative and effective teaching in many ways, including the top two teaching awards at Queen's University and a 3M National Teaching Fellowship uh, five years ago. Uh, on top of all this, Richard is joining us today from his home base in Ontario to discuss the publication of Early Christ Group and Greco-Roman Associations uh, with the subtitle Organizational Models and Social Practices. And it was published with Cascade Books, which is an imprint of uh, Whip and Stock Publishers. Uh, all that aside, Richard, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the New Books Network. Oh, thank you for having me. It's, it's wonderful. It's wonderful to have you. Um, uh, uh, so let's hop right into your book, I suppose, uh, um, and we'll learn more about you in the process as well. Um, in your introduction, this book, you say, is a collection of your essays published in various journals and edited volumes over the course of the last 25 years or so. So it's kind of a, uh, you know, a, a hallmark of your, of your scholarship. But it also serves as a retrospective highlighting this work that you've uh, done over this last uh, quarter century. Um, contributions to the field in a way that a traditional monograph, which is kind of one particular point in time, uh, um, uh, might not um, might in, might not indicate. How did this book come to fruition, and what was it like revisiting these older essays for uh, for this volume? Yeah, it's uh, it was interesting. I, I've had some um, encouragement to do this for for a few years uh, before it was published. Um, people saying, you know, sometimes it's it's nice to see so the arc of an argument arguments that, <laughs> that have been made by an individual scholar, um, and and uh, I had a sabbatical, and there was another book project I really wanted to work on as well, a collection of essays of 
um, associate uh, about voluntary associations and Christ groups by other authors. And I decided it might make sense to do that book, which covers 150 years and has one or two of my essays in it. And then this book, which is kind of my contribution over the last few decades. Uh, and I worked on both of those projects during my sabbatical. So I was just immersed in that. Uh, it, it's it's funny. It feels a bit like a greatest hits album for a rock band. I feel like <laughs> I'm, I'm going to like, you know, uh, you, you have some great, great hits so that others are a bit of filler. And, uh, you know, I, I, I and it was interesting going back to some of them and thinking, I don't know if I'd write it that way again, sure. but, but it's there. Mm -hmm. And now it's a little bit more easily accessible. You know, some of these things are in books that might not be in libraries or, or aren't yet converted to PDF. Some of them are journals that haven't yet. Uh, been published so that was kind of a bit a bit on the selection but i also wanted to, to hang together and kinds of how do we model what kind of recruitment practices were there and then meals and death so so there's other stuff i did on associations that aren't in there or even on those topics that i couldn't fit in so these ones i thought really made a contribution and people are reacting to so now students and other scholars could take a look at them see what they think I imagine it would take a pretty long time for someone to collect the essays on their own, but they're organized in a way that feels pretty natural to me. And we'll get into the organization of the book in, in a little bit. But um, uh, as you mentioned at the outset of the book, uh, I think it's worth spending some time on here. Um, it's interesting how you got started in in this work on voluntary associations. Um, you know, you say that uh, you were part of a small group of people who were um, uh, translating the um, tedious and often unrewarding data from inscriptions, epigraphy, non-literary papyri, and all, and so on. So how did you get started with this early assignment? Because it sounds like it was assigned to you. I don't, I don't know if that's true exactly. Um, but uh, how did this focus yeah. um, on the ways that people in antiquity would uh, organize and self-represent and, uh, um, and so on, how did that lead to uh, a niche for you? So this is, a, this is a, it's a great question, and I can start by saying I had no idea it would turn into my career. Okay. Uh, so I have to go all the way back to 1992, and I'm finishing my master's degree in Toronto, and I'm starting to work on my PhD. And um, I knew John Klombourg a little bit. I'd been working with him and taking some courses, and he invited me to be part of a translation group that was simply, we'll eat dinner together. And we'll translate some previously untranslated Greek to practice our Greek. Mm. So it was him, another professor, a postdoc, and, and me, a lowly MA student. <laughs> it was absolutely terrifying. I bet. <laughs> and, and so uh, the postdoc is the one that said, uh, Bradley McLean, he went on to write a, a whole um, textbook uh, on, on Greek epigraphy. Um, he said, you know, these these inscriptions haven't been translated. Uh, parallel to this, the Canadian Society of Biblical Studies was doing a three-year seminar on the associations, kind of revisiting the work of Wayne Meeks. So it made sense to do these. But the the real thing was practice our Greek. I was going to write my PhD dissertation on Luke Acts. But the more we got into the association descriptions, the more fascinated we, we all got with them in our own different ways. And one of the things that that I found that I tended to do when I we'd work on an inscription, I'd say, eh, that kind of sounds like Paul. And, mm. and, and I started running with it with a couple of, um, uh, you know, the Translocal Links paper was a, a course paper for a PhD course with John Kloppenborg. So I started running with with these ideas and uh, it just sucked me in. 
Um, but yeah, it was the the whole dinner every two weeks with your professors and that <laughs> be put on the spot about Greek inscriptions. That was that was that was tough. Uh, how much of that was dinner, and how much of it was translation? And um, it, I guess I'll bundle this in with another question that I had. Um, did you always? It sounds like you were intending to work on Christian material did this feel like a parabolic way around to it uh, like it's an interesting way to come at the, uh, the, the the christian material as we think of it yeah the the intent um, was for me was the christian material and so this was kind of par a, a side piece but i really was focused on the social world uh, this was the the heyday of the social context group um that bris molina had started mm -hmm. and, um, and 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 others so so a lot of emphasis on um on 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 anthropological and sociological kinds of studies and so these inscriptions gave us data to kind of fill in some gaps that literary text didn't. And so this this really was why I, I thought, no, well, even for, for working on the Gospels, this will be helpful. Um, thank, in terms of, of the meal versus, <laughs> fortunately, very quickly on, some other graduate students were invited to, to okay. join. So, so Bill Arnell did a bit, uh, Alicia Batten, uh, and then eventually Phil Harlan was part of the group and and some others. And, uh, and so then it felt a little bit more natural and we could commiserate together as, as students and, and uh, you know, check things uh but what was really good is is nobody was an expert on epigraphy and so we learned uh as we went and brandon mclean is the one that ran with it the most and kind of got in touch with epigraphers and, and brought back some stuff and you know chapters of what eventually became his his uh, handbook to greek epigraphy which is you know now well recognized uh in in the field of epigraphy so um you know, there's always when you're a student, you know, how, how long can we extend dinner? And you know, <laughs> maybe we'll get to my turn to translate a few sentences. Uh, but at the same time, it was really good to to do that. And then, as, uh, you know, if you read, I, I don't know why you would, but if you read the association source book from front to back, you realize there's a lot of repetition of phrasing. And so then we'd start to see patterns of formulas that they would use. We once you learn about sort of Macedonian dating or other ways of dating, then you recognize it in the text. Ah, oh, this is you know, this is such as this is you know, the mid middle of the second century CE kind of thing. So so it became easier as we went. I didn't read it front to back, but I did acquire it <laughs> and I did I did look into it and I did take it into things like I you know flag certain pages like wow that that's interesting that might be useful in the future, uh, and I'm Which sure is exactly what. We want it to sorry, it's exactly what we want it to do. It's exactly. Say, hey, I can do something with that. Absolutely. Now onto your scholarship away from the source book. I'm not sure it's possible or even desirable at all to take from this uh, book of yours from Cascade, this early Christ groups and Greco-Roman associations. I don't know if it's possible to sift out a single thesis from this all, but um, based on my reading of, of these different essays, you've published widely on the relevance of Greco-Roman associations to the study of early Christ groups. Uh, um, parts of this involve uh, supporting this category of associations as a comparable set of data. So uh, there are scholars in the field at the time that uh, were not interested in looking at what these associations were doing and if this was relevant, whereas you all sitting around the table, like you you, you thought this is very relevant. Um, but there are other models that scholars had relied on in the past, uh, uh, such as the synagogue or the mystery religion or the philosophical school that they thought were more comparable to early Christ groups. Um, so that constitutes part one of 
of your book. Uh, I forget exactly how you phrase it there, but uh, showing the relevance of associations to early Christianity. And then from there in parts two and three of the book, you, you have sort of an encyclopedic knowledge of uh, this uh, association data, and then you and you kind of show it off, uh, how it's relevant to early, early Christ groups. Um, but let's stick for uh, for the moment in part one of your book, uh, and I'll just ask some basic questions for the audience. Uh, uh, what, broadly speaking, are voluntary associations in the ancient world? Uh, what different forms could they take, and what traits or qualities did they have in common? And uh, why, uh, how, or how, maybe it's a, you could talk about the journey of this, how have they become almost universally acknowledged now as relevant comparanda for the study of early Christianity? Yeah, uh, I'll start with the, the last part of that and, and work a little bit backwards because it, it is a bit odd now um, for me. I mean, satisfying, but also worrying how, how <laughs> people jump in now. Uh, um, and even, uh, you know, some recent material I've, I've heard in conferences or, or read where people say, well, why are we even talking about the relevance of associations, of course they are. Hmm. Uh, and and so it makes my mind jumps back to when I was writing some of those early essays, when when it, it of course it wasn't. Mm -hmm. and, and how just how much resistance we had to using this model and um and the sort of repetition of the pushback in the same way. So then to to you know what are voluntary associations and, and why did we see them as important? I think the data was very limited. People knew uh, a bit more about synagogues, a bit more about philosophical schools than about the association. So the, the, there wasn't a lot of data there. And in Wayne Meek's book, he comes up with this fourfold taxonomy for early Christ groups, the household, philosophical school, synagogue, associations. And he says, you know, a synagogue makes the most sense. And you know, that makes, if you read Acts, certainly that's what it looks like Paul was doing. And it seemed to us when we read Paul, he says very clearly, you know, other people are going to the Judeans, but I'm not. And that, that's a bit different than that. Act. So it's not that the synagogues weren't relevant. We just thought maybe we could test out another way of thinking about associative behavior. Um, so let me then so back up when we were starting. It's like at first it was a lot on voluntary associations, and um, this was the term that was being used from from um, all through the the twentieth century and even earlier uh, to distinguish them from things like the, the official or semi -pub, semi official cults like the Augustales or the Naoi or, or some groups that were sort of more clearly sponsored by the state. Um, I we quickly not quickly it took us about a decade to drop the term voluntary. Okay. Um, I tried elective social formations for a while. That's in one of the, the chapters in this book. It did Jonathan, it was for the Fesher for Jonathan C. Smith. He liked the term, but nobody else did. <laughs> so, no one used it. Um, and elective isn't a lot better than voluntary because and, and the the reason it's important is for for example, an occupational association, if you're a carpenter working in Philippi, you you may volunteer to to join this group, but you might it might not really be volunteer. It might, if you don't join, you don't really get a lot of work. Sure. You're not you're not in the social network where you would find out about work, that you'd be able to join a crew or or something like that. Uh and so it this, we questioned what that meant. So now we just talk about associations. Okay. So that was one that was one big piece, but still keeping in mind they have a, a you know, a, an odd relationship to the state, particularly in the Roman world, where technically they're they're banned, 
but they're tolerated and in fact sometimes encouraged and, and they're quite public so they're, they're not really illegal uh, and then as we sort of figured out what these groups were and what they looked like and how they might help us understand Christ groups. Uh, at least in, in my mind, I imagine not overlapping Venn diagrams, but this this sort of larger circle in which we put in things like an ISIS, you know, ISIS groups, Dionysus group, Mithras groups, Christ groups, synagogues, philosophical associations. It seemed to me that that the it's a broader, more encompassing term about associative behavior. And then the the comparison is within that. So compare a Christ group to a Dionysus group in re with respect to how they eat meals or how they structure leadership. Uh, and you can do that with synagogues. You can do that with um, uh, with Mythos groups. And so then to the third part of your question, why it matters. And, and if there's a single thesis kind of ran through the book, but especially this first part, I I think it's, it's saying, well, it sounds odd to say, but Christ groups weren't special. Uh, that the old paradigm, and we still see it a lot, of Jews, Christians, and others, as if others is a separate category where everybody would be self-identified as a thing the same way Judeans could be or Christians could be. That doesn't make sense. All we have is others. Mm -hmm. We put Judeans in there, Christ groups in there, and you know sometimes the synagogue is the best com comparator for for an early Christ group, and and vice versa. We can learn about synagogues by looking at how these these uh, early people that are following a Jewish, a lot of the Jewish themselves, uh, following a Jewish Messiah, how they structure things. What does that help us learn about you know Judaism at that time? Uh, because it's not separate. It's not a separate category. It's within this more amorphous thing of of um, group behavior. So, so the edges become fuzzier. And um, anyway, I could stop there, but I could say more about that. That that's I think really what what I was going for early on. And um, yeah, not that associations are different than and or better than synagogues or philosophical schools, but are part of a larger conversation that involves all of them. Right. And these, this is how people chose to associate with one another. And uh, even though you have dropped the language of voluntary or uh, elective didn't catch on quite as much, but mostly people choose the social groups that they're in and they um, have similar ways as the world around them of organizing and partaking in meals and promoting themselves and so on and so forth. And uh, 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 I think you, you established that well in part one of the book. Uh, to, to pick on something that you mentioned, though, uh, these groups are uh, officially banned. Can you say a little bit more about that and why and uh, yeah. why why the ruling authorities were uh, so afraid of people gathering? <laughs> um, I think they're m primarily um, nervous about them becoming political, and and certainly self evidence of Cicero, others of these groups um, getting involved in political campaigns and um, the the unruly behavior that that would. That, that 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 would uh, encourage. So, um, you know, one 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 example. The, some of these groups met in taverns, which, of course, is is never a good place for, <laughs> or or is exactly where you want to have political discussion. But you know, with 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 enough wine, uh, people can wax eloquent, and it can turn into more unruly things. So, uh, you know, we we find you know times when um, when the the magistrates say we have to stop this unruly behavior of these groups so shut down the taverns mm. right so th th that's clearly where they're meeting and and this will do but they also had um you know the uh, uh traders or um groups of um working on the docks had 
a, a social life with one another. They ate meals together. They took care of burying, burying one another, particularly when they didn't have family around. Um, they had ways of connecting that also reined in some of that so discontentedness. Um, so on the one hand, they're encouraged because of that. On the other hand, the legislation has been there since the Republican period, banning them. Julius Caesar, Augustus, so open it up a little bit. There, here's here's some that can be um, allowed, and you get to the letters of Pliny and Bithynia writing to the Emperor Trajan, who says, "Yeah, I don't know what to do with these Christians, but I know groups are banned." And Trajan's like, "Nah, you know, just gotta leave them alone." But but <laughs> then then when he asks about firefighters in another city, Trajan's like, "Hard no, don't let that group of associate that don't let that association you know form." So, so he's clearly worried. Um, the analogy that that I use with my students is it's uh, like driving um, on on a highway. The speed limit might be sixty miles an hour, but if the flow of traffic is seventy miles an hour, when you go buy a, a police car at seventy, you're, you're probably fine. You know they're not going. But if you're going at you know hundred, they're they're going to pull you over. <laughs> but even at seventy, if they feel like it, they might pull you over. Right, because the law is there. You're breaking the law, but for the most part, it's like, yeah, just let the cars go. Everything's fine. Sure. Um, let's see here. Uh, so, uh, let's talk a little bit more about the biases that were ex existing in scholarship when you started this work, and uh, especially how your work played off of that of Wayne Meeks. So, we've mentioned him a couple of times already in our discussion, but we're talking about his uh, book, The First Urban Christians, I believe. Yeah. Um, right. Uh, so, uh, in chapter four of this book, you uh, talk about how major studies that preceded yours, such as his, embraced the synagogue as the best model, and you know, there's a lot of reliance on, as you said, on the book of Acts uh, as, a, as a way to interpret Paul's letters versus Paul's letters themselves, which is, you know, a pretty big mountain to climb for um, uh, many scholars, getting over the Acts hump, as it were. Um, but you uh, counter these various uh, objections against the use of associations, and you say that other models of community organization need to be seriously considered, which, uh, you know, you're, you're pointing toward uh, associations the entire way. Uh, in one of your more recent essays, you argue that association is kind of the big umbrella term and you know as you say uh, um, uh, Christ groups the the churches and uh, uh, the synagogue are uh, underneath this big umbrella so what what are the most common um, assumptions or uh, objections to your use of uh, of the data from associations that you encounter early in your career uh, was it just uh, people assuming that Christians are unique in the ancient world or is there a little bit more to um, the objections that they had um I, I would start with, I think there was the, the assumption that um, Christians were unique and Christianity, there was a lot of language around the triumph of Christianity. So what I would call the grand narrative, the grand theological narrative that, that has run through history. Mm -hmm. And so the inevitability of, of why Christ groups would succeed. And, and in order for them to succeed, they, they must have been different than, but also better than mm -hmm. um, all the other groups. Um, Jonathan Z. Smith has a book in 19, uh, published in 1990 called Drudgery Divine. And mm -hmm. so at first I was playing a, a lot off that. And, and I think people that were reacting to our work were still falling into this thing he was trying to counter. And there, I think he rightly points out in previous scholarship, um, talking about Christ groups coming through the synagogues, mm -hmm. used the synagogues as kind of a prophylactic to keep it from so-called paganism. 
that that and it's sort of in part reacting to the history of religion school from earlier that kind of said Christianity got everything from Mithraism, so we can discount it. And then you know, saying, oh no, they got it through the synagogues, and that's monotheism, so that's okay. <laughs> and and so the concern wasn't with with synagogues per se, it was with Christianity and kind of protecting it. And so um, I don't think Meeks was particularly trying to do that, but it kind of fits into that. Mm. And so when I was reading him in light of all the inscriptions, I thought we have to test other models. And I probably pushed back a little too hard at that time against the synagogues and saying, oh, it's separate than the associations. And in later work, I've, uh, you know, with people like Anders, I was just at a conference in Sweden with Anders Ranesson, and we've we've had, you know, he's done so much great work on and synagogues as associations. And I think he's absolutely right. And, you know, I've done a little bit of that in the uh, 2015, 2016, essays that aren't in this book, um, that the synagogues kind of fit into that model. And, and, and so there's no need to kind of make it quite that like the lines between them um, that, that were being made up front. So uh, those articles are reading them now. And so I was pushing back hard because that was what we were getting hit with. You know, hard, no, absolutely not. It's the synagogues and look at Acts. That was one of it. And the other is Christianity is different. And, and that's why I go through things in that article and the Translocal Links article. So picking up on the places where they say, well, Christianity uses a term you don't find very often in association groups, ecclesia. That's not wrong. You don't. But if you pulled out a Dionysus groups and look at the, you know, the word, one of the words they use, technati, if you pull them out and say within the great swath of associations, you don't find technati used for very many of them. Mm-hmm. So they're unique and different and special. Mm-hmm. I was just trying to say, if you don't, if you don't pull Christianity out, we pull one of the other ones out. You can make the same kind of their special argument, and and so it's like everybody is the same and everybody's special. And of course, Ecclesia holds a special uh, relevance for us that it may not have had for them quite at the time. And, and you do a good job of showing that the um, you know the the ways that people called their groups aren't very uh, uh, common among groups, even though the, you know yeah. some sometimes they stick. And the Translocal Links uh, art, uh, article that you mentioned, I don't know if if it's worth uh, uh, saying something a little bit more about that. But uh, one way that the unique uniqueness of Christianity, uh, it seemed like, was expressed in other scholars that you uh, argue against is that, uh, well, Christianity is different because uh, there are ties between the ecclesiae uh, of Paul uh, that don't exist in the Greco-Roman associations. But you say that, no, that's not true at all. Actually, there are ties between uh, 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 ethnic groups from different cities, for example, that would uh, help one another financially uh, at, at, at certain times. And uh, often, the the links between Christian groups are overstated at times, so you you problematize that uh, that whole thing there. Um, the let's move on to the next question though. Uh, the the data that are related to associations as group organized and are in a kind of a general generally localized setting, and that means that the the biggest relevance of your work is to the individual uh, ecclesia of Paul. Um, um, basically, that uh, the data that we find from the Greco-Roman world can be applied most quickly to them. So, is it fair to say that the bulk of your attention has focused on the less 
theologically uh, uh, cited letters of Paul. So instead of Romans and Galatians, which seem to get all of the headlines in Pauline scholarship, uh, you have uh, tended to focus on Philippians, First Thessalonians, and uh, and First and Second Corinthians. Has this limited the work, uh, the uptake of your work at all? And I'll continue uh, to another part of the question. Um, I, I'm also interested in a comment that you made in the introduction that gets expanded upon in various essays on the different facets of the Thessalonian community. So you say something like Thessalonica functions closer to an occupational association, whereas Philippi acts more like a religious association. So they're kind of two different models that Paul is, uh, uh, Paul's communities, I guess, it's not Paul himself necessarily, Paul's communities are forming and thinking of themselves in different ways. Do these come from an intrinsic facet of Paul's own approach to these communities or something else? And can you explain why they would behave differently when they're both called ecclesia? Yeah, this is a, that's a great question. And that actually takes me right back to where I started. Um, in my PhD dissertation, um, which was working on in the early to mid-90s, um, the, the go-to for understanding the structure of Paul's communities was Corinthians. So we have a lot of data from Corinthians, first and second Corinthians, and, and sort of a, he talks a lot about the structure there. So, you know, yes, I admit I was not that interested in the theology. So, you know, Romans, Galatians, that sort of fell by the wayside a little bit. And, and but I thought I was reading Corinthians, but I was doing a lot of work on Thessalonians and, and even more so on Philippi at the time. And I thought, it doesn't like a lot of stuff from from first corinthians has been imputed onto thessalonians and philippians for example you know well of course they had the lord's supper we know that from corinthians i'm like well you know where does it say that <laughs> in the text so my goal early on was to show how different the macedonian and i put them together the macedonian communities of paul philippi and thessaloniki were different than the corinthian ones and then I was using the association data to kind of unpack what kinds of social practices. You know, I worked on the, the text from both those cities and the whole region of Macedonia. To my surprise, what I hadn't anticipated, but it makes so much sense now, but, you know, I was naive at the time, is how different they would end up looking from each other. I assume because they're, they're 110 kilometers from each other, Paul, you know, most likely went from one to the other pretty quickly. And they're all in Macedonia. So, of course, they'd be similar in structure and et cetera, et cetera. And the more I worked with the text, the more I realized they're not. <laughs> um, and and that kind of led to thinking, ah, you know, I, you can't, what I was resisting from using First Corinthians, I can't also then methodologically say, well, Philippi is like Thessalonica. Certainly they can help us understand each other when we, again, comparing them as if we were comparing them to a non-Christian group. So where are their similarities, where are their differences? Um, but yeah, that was a big, a big learning curve for me and, and changed the nature of the dissertation. So I ended up using those broad categories of occupational versus religious or cultic kind of a, a focus of a group, in part because of the language in Thessalonians, just there's so much of it that resonates with what, what I would expect in an occupational association. And that's simply not true at Philippi. And, you know, the mixed gender group and focused on some of the language around ritual sounds more like the, the, the kind of groups that we, we as scholars lump into a category we call religious associations. 
Great. Um, so um, I should say uh, uh, at this point that my own introduction to your work came in the course of reading for comps, and, and uh, one of my uh, comps was on uh, the Thessalonian correspondence. So uh, I interacted with at least uh, your essay that appeared in New Testament Studies um, on uh, uh, Paul's narration at the beginning of First Thessalonians of his own relationship with the Thessalonian group. So uh, that, that spoke to me, and uh, um, that encouraged me to look further into your scholarship. But um, uh, some, commenta some commentators on First Thessalonians, like Abraham Malherby, uh, have taken the data from uh, 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 Paul as evidence that the Thessalonians were uh, that they kind of transform into an evangelistic band after uh, Paul and his group left uh, town under mysterious circumstances that people kind of, you know, look to acts to explain. Um, and uh, but you want to push back against that and uh, say that, uh, well, the association data can explain what is going on here for the Thessalonian group. So getting into the nitty gritty a little bit on uh, what's going on in one individual letter of Paul's. Uh, can you can you explain your argument uh, in uh, <laughs> short terms in uh, in that essay that appears as chapter nine in this book? Um, you say basically that they're just kind of doing a bit of self-promotion honors for their patrons honors for the God that they have now taken on, and they're not actually doing missionary work and going around and, you know, spreading the gospel, as it were. So how have you come to these conclusions, and what comparable evidence do we have from, you know, uh, association data that uh, similar self-promotion was typical of occupational associations as you have uh, uh, couched these uh, Thessalonians? Uh, yeah, that was, that was a fun uh, project as well to write. And and again, it's it part of, uh, so it's part of a larger group uh, with Ron Cameron, John T. Smith, John, John Klopborg and others called Redescribing Christian Origins. You know, Bill Arnell, Willie Braun, these all people that have continued to, and you know, were and are continuing to write on these things. And it was trying to think outside of the usual paradigms. Mm -hmm. And and so for me, um, it's, it was pretty clear from some other work I'd done that the, the whole um, so-called missionary journeys of Paul um, was a construct of acts. Mm -hmm. And and so then you sort of, and, and even weren't even imagined kind of as missionary journeys or weren't written about that way until the, the, the colonial expansion, you know, in the 1600s 1700s is when you find scholars, scholarship at that time, theology at that time, rereading Acts, rereading Paul through the lens of this colonial missionary. Hmm. And, and I thought, okay, let's let's push back and see if that makes sense. If we take Acts out of the picture and look just at Thessalonians and, and at Paul's letters and what he thinks he's doing within the broader context of what would we find imaginable at that time. And that's where the comparative data is important. Mm -hmm. And I thought, Given the time frame, is there if 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 I'm right? Now there's a couple of ifs and ifs and ifs, but um, a lot of people seem to, and not just me, but um, agree that the the Thessalonian community was predominantly, if not exclusively, non-Jewish at its core. He says in that first chapter they turned from idols to God, and that's certainly not the way Paul, a Jew, would. <laughs> Describe other Jews, right. right? So, so given that they're based, they probably know very little about the Hebrew Bible, and and that you know what they've learned, they've learned from Paul, and then to imagine they would go out and evangelize on this the way Malherbe talks about the you know, philosophical schools, and, and this, it just seemed to me that that would be stretching a little bit. Mm 
And what we found in the association data, of course, is the way the self-promotion of these groups would involve, um, you know, the Abaki inscriptions were the best one. You know, now we are the best of all Bacchic groups, sort of, <laughs> the, the sort of like self-promotion in that way. And I, I, given that Thessalonica is a major port and would have a lot of traffic in and out, and that leatherworking, if that's what Paul was involved in there is a transport like it's a very easy to transport kind of of occupation people would move around uh following where the work is um I could imagine that's the way the proclamation is going is more about look at how great this group is mm-hmm. that would include linking to the deity it's it's not that but it's not what we would call mission so earlier in the interview, you mentioned uh, the, the sort of word ecclesia or church. And as soon as you use that word in a modern context, people have certain ideas. With my students, I use the word house. And I said, Jesus went into a house. And what you know, close your eyes, what do you imagine when I read a story and I stop at house? And you know, some of them name buildings that I know they've gotten from uh, Zeffirelli's Jesus film or you know, whatever. <laughs> so, and then usually three or four in a substance says, well I actually thought of my grandmother's house and I'm like of course you did that's what you think of and so when you hear the word church you hear of a certain thing so when we think of mission we think of it in a certain way that we've we've been enculturated to to think of it and I wanted to try and rethink it about recruitment rather than mission and 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 so yeah self-promotion not missionaries, but just people going from place to place and being excited about something that had happened to them, but not making it the focus of what they're doing. They're not going out as missionaries. They're just traveling. But when you travel, you say, hey, you won't believe what happened. My whole, my group started following this new deity and it's, you know, we talk about it, we fight about it, we argue about it. And these people died. We don't know what to do about it because we thought they'd be alive till this God came back. You know, those kinds of things are what we see being reflected in Paul's rhetoric in the letter elsewhere. Right. And uh, the data that you compare that uh, to show that uh, people would promote their the new the deity that they have taken on uh, in in other associations. So uh, um, it, it, the, the relevance is easy to see once you get into the, the nitty gritty of 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 this work. Um, so uh, turning slightly away from the Thessalonians, <laughs> uh, after this discussion of their behavior, you then have sort of a pair of chapters under the heading of recruitment, um, which is uh, um, something you mentioned just uh, recently. Uh, you handle the ways that different associations would self-define, say basically this is what we are versus this is what we're not, and uh, expand their ranks over time uh, in ways that are available to us, sometimes through membership lists and sometimes through uh, archaeological uh, expansions that we can observe uh, over time. Uh, these chapters are tied somewhat, again, to the, the question of the success of the Christian message, a topic that always you know attracts a certain attention, and uh, whether we can deduce anything useful from this providential retelling of history that focuses only on the growth of Christianity in these uh, uh, early centuries. So uh, what do you find relevant to this question from the evidence of recruitment, advancement, growth, and so on from the self-promotional practices of Greco-Roman associations in this same period? Uh, and uh, again, is Christianity unique in the way in, uh, <laughs> uh, in this respect? Yeah, well, I mean, the grand narrative says, of course, it is. I mean, Luke starts out with what five thousand being converted, then three thousand converted. But but this is very practical, logistical questions that I I think we started to ask because it was popping up in in the association data, and that is, if your meeting place is X and it's limited to thirty people, 
what do you do if you are successful the way, for example, Axe imagines, and all of a sudden you have 500? You have a problem. Where are they going to meet? Um, if you have a meal together, how are you going to feed them? So where are you going to put them? Where are you going to, how are you going to feed them? And and it made us, it made us and you know, I, I wrote, wrote on it, but others did as well, start thinking about the restrictions on on that kind of uh, the, the logistical um, restrictions on that narrative of this quick and rapid expansion of early Christianity. Um, you know, Rodney Stark's work made us start start thinking about a much slower incremental growth, uh, and and you know whatever may or may not be the problems with with that paradigm. Certainly, I think the slow growth model makes a lot more sense um certainly that would explain why christians don't show up in the archaeological record very early on but what what we get with associations is groups that have grown over time to a place where they are showing up in the record and yeah their membership lists or, and even their bylaws might say you know the group's limited to 60 you know and you can only get in if your dad's in or you know we can see that you know there's people have died and then they get replaced and and so it's a very limited more exclusive group which in some ways makes it it more desirable people want to be part of that and so imagining um i i should be careful i i think paul imagined it was ever expansive like he wanted everybody i think but the practicalities on the ground were were much different than Paul imagined. So so for for the um you know the problems at Corinth that he addresses were real logistical problems that you know he probably hadn't thought through when mm -hmm. when he was first first there. And so they're addressing some of these things, you know, around meals and 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 you know, with the Thessalonians around burial. And so yeah, the data really sort of the data from the associations made us think about groups. And go back and revisit the language of the letters and say what's going on there. And you can see how uh, uh, you know associations grew over time uh, slowly, yeah. and cool. uh, uh, and use that to think about how Christians um, might have grown. Um, so, uh, getting away from Paul's letters, even uh, in, in this case, uh, you do have other chapters in this book relating data from associations to other early Christ groups, such as uh, the uh, community possibly behind Gospel of Matthew and uh, um, whatever Luke is reflecting in Acts of the Apostles. So, uh, um, while I was reading your book, I was constantly reevaluating evaluating uh, the evidence uh, for uh, associations through my work on the Shepherd of Hermas. And sometimes there are scholars who say that Hermas is part of um, a, 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 an agricultural association of some sort, perhaps of salt farmers who, you know, uh, come to Christianity in a certain way. Uh, that's not to get too deep into Hermas, but uh, just to say that I see the broad applicability yeah. of your work in ways. And uh, the, of course, you have um, in the source book, you know, uh, list of uh, uh, of different um, uh, inscriptions and so on from salt farmers, so that you know popped in my head. Uh, but anyway, um, we can let's turn to some of the non-Pauline uh, comparisons that you make, and um, we'll save the Acts stuff for readers of your book. So we'll we'll turn to the Gospel of Matthew. Um, can you discuss the points of connections that you uh, that you see in the Gospel of Matthew to association association data, and um, the sort of community development aspects? in Matthew, it, how well-developed basically is it as an association? Uh, I think you do some interesting uh, uh, work here uh, complementing other scholars who have started this work and you say, well, having been on the ground, knowing all that we do about the associations, here's what we see. Yeah, yeah this this is a, a 
fun one for me to write uh, in part because it was um i just started my first job at loyola university in chicago and replaced a um a scholar uh william thompson who had passed away and they wanted to do a fresher for him on matthew and asked me to write on matthew and i thought you know, I, I've never really worked on, on Matthew. <laughs> um, Sounds daunting, you know, jumping in, jumping into a different pool than and, you're used to. <laughs> and, and you can see that reflected in just how many footnotes are on each yes. page. It's like yes. the more, the more terrified I am, the, yeah. the, the more I need to, uh, to, to, to sort of get into to make sure I'm okay. So with this one, it was really, um, Bruce Molina's work got me into reading Tuckman on, um, stages of community formation, the, you know, forming, storming, norming, performing, uh, journey kind of different stages and looking at at that point you know with the association data we were looking at i could see groups in in different in different stages you you don't see any evidence for the hey we should form a group all you you sort of they're already formed but they do narrate how they were formed. So, you know, a God appeared to me in a dream and said I should do this, or friends got together to do X, or, you know, these kinds of, of formative stages. And when we we could see early on what they look like, and then um, bylaws tell us a little bit about the storming stage where, you know, again, the bylaws are the norms that tell us how they're going to live together. But they clearly come out of some problems in the community. So sure. this, I mean, I'll, I'll let readers unpack all, you know, there's a lot of data. There. But from I realized Matthew's, way Matthew narrates the Jesus story seems to assume the communities have gone through that. And what popped out for me are the few places where we have that word ecclesia on the lips of Jesus, mm -hmm. right? On uh, um, So when he says to Peter, in, in light of his confession, on this um, rock, I will build my ecclesia, mm -hmm. or um, even more so when, so that's the foundation stage, but he's using a, a term that, you know, we absolutely know Jesus wouldn't have thought like that. I mean, it's a theological commitment to imagine that he knew what was going on. Right. So, so put that aside and say, no, uh, this, this is obviously reflecting a different stage. And then later on chapter 18, where he talks, um, Jesus talks about what to do if somebody sins. And at one stage, you bring it to, to the church. But before there's a whole list of things. Sounds like a group that's, again, it's reflecting kind of the bylaws or at least, you know, the ways other groups have negotiated that kind of disruptive behavior and how you address it. And, and then, you know, as people well know, Matthew ends with the Great Commission, go out and, and recruit. And I realized that's, that's, that's not yet being done for Matthew. That's, that's why he wants that, that at the words of Jesus at the end. Uh, that's the performing stage. And, and this is, you know, go and do what you're constituted to do kind of, of message. So I kind of walked through Matthew and said, where do we see reflections of each of these stages? And the, com the comparisons were with the association data um, in terms of where those groups were at the time. Yeah, even if it may have felt like you were uh, stepping into <laughs> hot water uh, talking about Matthew for the first time, I, I, it was an enlightening approach to it. Uh, thinking about how well formed uh, the uh, you know the Matthean Church is uh, at at the time that they reflect their traditions back onto the lips of Jesus, it's an it's a very interesting approach to it, and uh, I highly recommend that as well. Um, uh, Richard, uh, this is your chance to correct a wrong that has been going on in scholarship for for a while. 
style because among even an educated audience you'll often hear christianity described as a burial association or as a funerary association this kind of being a model to think about how early christ groups were uh, uh, or maybe how they performed or something like that uh, but i gather from uh, several of the essays in this in this book that this isn't a meaningful description of any association uh, that you see from antiquity even if their duties did sometimes overlap with you know burying members who have died uh, um, who had no other means to uh, afford a burial so at one point you even <laughs> kind of dunk on a, a pretty prominent scholar uh, for carrying this category forth when you don't think it's relevant anymore so why has this concept of burial association no longer uh, why has this fallen away and is it no longer supported among scholars like yourself who work on associations and to return to the material of first thessalonians for one last time um, how does this recognition of burial and memorial as a typical function of uh, these type of associations affect your interpretation of the episode that's happening there at first thessalonians 4 where paul reassures the community that the deceased will take part in the uh, perusia of the lord yeah, this is uh, that was a challenge early on. I think I would separate. Um, so the 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 differentiation is the, the something they do burial versus their reason for being, mm-hmm. which is just simply to or mostly to uh, as a burial association. And so very early on, as association inscriptions were coming to light, um, you have uh, scholars at the time they're finding these things we're talking 17 1800s um a lot of the work there was looking to say you know how how did christianity survive you know persecutions and and things like this and this category of burial association is a way of saying ah well we these associations seem to be very public about burying their members which that's true and this is a way they they got around this ban on on association, like on associations, they they did the ser- service of making sure bodies got buried, and this must be what helped Christianity survive. Now it was tied in with the excavation of the catacombs sure. and seeing all of the Christian iconography and art down there. You know stories about this is where Christians hid in order to survive persecution. You know they're in the catacombs, and so so this whole it was almost like we need Christians, we need an explanation for Christianity to have survived. And so burial association makes sense. And then the data was read through through that way. Um, so in 1982, um, Franz Ausputel kind of debunked this notion sort of on one level, Kloppenborg again uh, in uh, the 1980s talking about a taxonomy. Was, although it seems like a lot of associations across time and geography did take care of burying their dead that's the never presented or almost never presented as the primary reason they existed it's usually around their occupation or around some cultic consideration or some ethnic identification or a neighbor even a neighborhood identification but but not we are constituted i mean even around drinking <laughs> with the drinking buddies they might take care of burying the dead but it's not their primary reason so we kind of took that as a, a categorization out because it was linked since we didn't take it out. It took it out because the data is not there, but it helps dismantle Christianity again from this specialness that they do it in a way that, that protects them so they can tr- eventually triumph. But then you're left with things like Thessalonians where they're talking about dead people. 
Um, and it looks like maybe they were a burial association that they no longer do that. So what I've tried to show in my in my work is that um, it, that like other associations, burying the dead would have been one of the things that that was um, was given as part of the social network. You were sort of guaranteed a decent burial in the same way. Once a month, you're guaranteed a pretty nice meal, or at least a simple meal, um, as being part of the association. And in the case of Thessalonians, they've been regularly doing this for their dead because, you know, I think they were already constituted as a occupational association before Paul even got to them. And they've heard Paul talking about this new God who's going to come in and destroy the world, but you get a, you know, you get a freebie uh, <laughs> to pass out of that. Uh, they, and I think probably not wrongly, have heard Paul to be saying this is going to happen quickly and nobody will die and people have died and they're like oh i guess it's not i guess we shouldn't bury them but i guess since they've missed out i guess they're not really included in our group anymore <laughs> and paul's response is saying no no they're just sleeping and they'll be caught up first actually puts them back in the realm in the same way in associations even when someone died you you still were went into their grave once a year you might have honored them or had some memorial you kept them alive as part of the group you kept their memory alive um again that's not your primary purpose but it's something you did something that that's, you knew that when you died that would happen for you and i think i hear paul saying that has to continue on until jesus comes back and then those of us he includes himself in it then we get caught up and i think that's the giveaway he's talked about it as happening in his lifetime mm -hmm. and they're like but it didn't happen to these people so they're out of it and he's like no just keep on the way you did before absolutely um it, it sort of reminds me of the, the categorical error it would be if for example there was a 27th century archaeologist who uh you know found evidence of uh christian churches from you know the 1800s 1900s and that you see that they all have cemeteries right next to them and oh of course it's a burial association whereas we we know that it runs much deeper than that uh yeah. today so um it, it's worthwhile to uh, counter that whole thing and I, I also appreciate the spin that you put on it with the uh, with uh, uh, the First Thessalonians four, um, Richard. To round out our conversation today, I, I'm I'm doing something a little bit different and new. So uh, thank you for being willing to be a guinea pig here. Are you active on YouTube? Do you watch YouTube videos much? Uh, did you know Do you know what I'm talking about here when I when I say that there's <laughs> kind of like tiered levels of analysis? Uh, I think it, it comes from a series of Wired videos where um, uh, they ask experts in the field to explain a concept at you know, five different levels of difficulty for different audiences, first of which is like for a first grader. And I'm not going to ask you to explain associations to a first grader exactly. But at the New Books Network, we uh, serve a variety of audiences all at once. Uh, and as a means of concluding this conversation, I, I wanted to know if you would be willing to filter your contributions to scholarship on associations in early Christianity for, you know, laypersons in the church who might be interested in this type of stuff. Uh, you know, they might have 
connections that they make to their own associations, whether occupational or otherwise. Then for pastors, then for students, which might be an advanced undergraduate or, you know, a beginning seminary student, perhaps. And then also for fellow historians or scholars in the field. So you can feel free to accentuate different aspects of your work for each of these four audiences, if you will. But I, I wondered if you would uh, be our guinea pig and, and uh, uh, um, explain your work, what you would hope that these different audiences take away from the kind of work that you do for uh, for laypersons, for pastors, for students, and for fellow scholars um, uh, uh, from your work. Sure, that's that's quite the challenge. Uh, but I think, <laughs> I think an important one uh, in in the in the sense of you know how do we communicate these things. So, um, so I could start with a, a layperson in the church. Um, I think. There's, I think, again, it's hard to even talk about the church as a. Yeah, a, sure, of course. For of lots course. of people that go to church, no matter kind of what brand it is, will think of, at least hear about Christianity, hear the Bible being read, and think of the experience of early Christians being somehow different than theirs, that they did church all the time. That's all they thought about. But in their own lives, they go to church, but they might play adult hockey, their kids might play baseball, they might be along to a quilting group, these sorts of different other groups that are, are around their city. And I would say that's how we should imagine the early church as well. They weren't sitting around seven days a week doing church. <laughs> they, they had lives too. <laughs> they're, they're like you. Um, and, and they were trying to figure out how to fit in their membership, which was very important to them and, and, and gave them a sense of belonging, a sense of identity, but at the same time, wasn't their entire world. And I think sometimes people feel guilty about that. Um, so, and then moving up to pastors, don't preach that old paradigm. <laughs> <laughs> um, help people understand how how church, how, how, how their faith fits into broader parts of their life. That's what um, the texts are trying to do. And there's this, Paul is imagining a world in, in which the Spirit just leads everybody, but people on the ground were, were trying to fit that in. So don't make Paul paradigmatic. Mm. <laughs> it would be part of that. Um, and then, yeah, for students, I think here here's where, again, seminary versus religious studies kinds of student might make a difference. But um, I do think it, I think the work helps us have a different understanding of church today. So maybe that's also with the pastors and and the way church is used to help navigate um, a sense of, of belonging even now. Um, not otherworldly, but thisworldly. And so for students, I, I would say, continue to push uh, on the context. And, and this kind of bleeds into the, what would I say to scholars as well? I do think we're past the stage, and, and in part the impetus for right, for pulling these essays together in one book, we're past the stage right now where we have to make the case that that the comparison is worth it. We're, we really do need to do more and more of that kind of nitty-gritty work that, that you were talking about. So for students, I think... Um, Figuring out where we are is important and, and that we're at this place where we're past thinking about Christianity as somehow special or separated out. Uh, and then moving to, to scholars to say, help your students and in your own work, move into those, um, not revisiting the, meth the methodological, why we should we do it, but the so what part of it. Like, how is it changing our understanding of Matthew, of Acts? Um, 
push back against me. Where am I wrong? <laughs> you know, reading, some of the, reading some of the, you know, the, you know, translocal links essay. Um, I think there's some things I would do differently now. Well, I, I should say, I think I do do differently now. Uh, I think I pushed the data a little bit too much uh, on part in part, but there's other data now that I use that I actually think that makes it a stronger argument than mm. is in that essay. And that's why I included it in the book. I think it was important to kind of set the stage for the discourse. But there's more work to be done, and that's, I think, where the scholarship can take it. And perhaps that'll appear in your second quarter century contribution. <laughs> you know, your second, your second greatest album. Volume, yeah, greatest hits, volume two. <laughs> Wonderful. Usually on those albums, there's only one good song in that. <laughs> <laughs> You're just playing off the old hits once again, right? Exactly. Uh, very good. So, Richard, we have just condensed uh, 25 years of your scholarship into about an hour, and uh, inevitably there will be pieces of of this that we we didn't properly address or anything, or something like that. So, is, if there's anything else that you'd like to make sure the listeners hear about uh, feel free to say it here otherwise i would just ask you what you're working on next and what what fresh scholarship we'll see appearing from you in in the short term and maybe have you back on the new books network uh, to talk about oh that would be exciting yes um yeah, and new scholarship, I always say I'm going to get away from associations and do something different that I never seem to be able to. Uh, I've written a lot, even in this book, uh, there's articles about death, and I continue to work on that. So, um, you know, I think I have the makings of a book on, on death in, in the Greco-Roman world, not just in associations, but more broadly. Um, but I'm excited about a new project I'm involved with in in the development of Christianity in, in Thessaly in, in Greece. Um, Cilius Brettenbach has is over overseeing a larger project that basically is rewriting Adolf von Harnack's the expansion of Christianity in two volumes into multiple very technical scholarly volumes, mm-hmm. and so he's invited me to work with with that group uh, on on that specific area. They've already done Macedonia and Achaia and, and the Lycus Valley and such. Um, so these are big projects uh, in the making. So I think it'll be a few years, and then of course inevitably. Um, in our source book, I think in the introduction, we say it's a digestion of what will be three volumes, very technical volumes. Those three volumes are out and we're only halfway through the data. So, okay. uh, so there's three more to come and I'm working on the inscriptions from the Western provinces, not, not Italy and Rome. That's so a one volume could be Italy and Rome. One will be the um, Greek islands and one will be the Western provinces. So. That, that that's going to fill out that three volume will now be a six volume set of um of of uh you know more technical explorations of of a few of the inscriptions well excellent much work to do and it sounds like you're well placed to uh, uh perform the work very well uh so richard uh, we thank you for your time today for your work on this uh, association data as it, and its relevance to early christianity and thanks again for being our guest on the new books network Well, thank you very much for having me. It was a great pleasure. Yeah, you're welcome. Again, uh, Dr. Askoff's new book is Early Christ Groups and Greco-Roman Associations, Organizational Models and Social Practices. And it's available now from Cascade Books, uh, wherever quality books are sold. I've been Rob Heaton, your host in New Testament and Early Christian Studies for New Books in Biblical Studies. And I'll be with you again on your next download. But in the meantime, never stop questioning. Thanks. Bye-bye.